Hello and welcome to Blight, Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. I am Sean Williamson. We put out the first episode of the second season mid-March as the world grappled with the reality of the coronavirus as schools and stores and, well, everything closed around the country. At the time, and still, the aim of this show was to face the current moment with clear eyes and to discuss ways to live our lives under the virus but also besides the virus. And to ask questions like, what could we do to keep ourselves and others safe? What was in our hearts that was too strong to be silenced by our anxieties and the real physical and spiritual dangers of this world? Since that time, we've learned a lot. People have come to Blight to share their own fears and desires, to share their strength and determination, to share their poetry and their music. We've talked about the revolutionary power of gardening and the revolutionary power of cycling. And since we started the second season, I can see every day in the real world those powers coming through. Recently, I attended the second installment of the Black is Beautiful bike ride hosted by Webster X, Zed Kenzo, Darius Smith, and Noga Faith Solomon. This was a 12-mile bike ride where people came from all over Wisconsin to represent, stand with, and defend black lives in the city of Milwaukee. Part of the messaging of the ride was how white supremacist government policy hinders and has historically hindered the ability of people of color to safely ride bikes and walk in America, activities that should be safe alternatives to car or public transport. I'm going to share a piece of writing from the Webster X IG account. Mobility justice is a vision for a world rooted in social justice where people feel safe existing on the streets and can build lives experiencing the full joy of movement regardless of age, ability, race, or gender. Now, isn't that an obvious, beautiful, and agreeable thing? The catch being we cannot have mobility justice without racial justice. That is why we must continue to ride and protest. That is why, if we have the means, we need to share our time and our money with the cause. My son Theodore rode his bike in the ride, and he loved it, and he knew what it was for. That is the beauty of this world in turmoil. That still, inspired young people are out there showing their power and their love. Once the poet Nabila Lovelace came to my graduate writing class, I will include a link to her excellent book of poetry titled Sons of Achilles in the show notes. I often recall something she said in the class that art is about being together, that poetry is about being together right now, not just after the apocalypse, but right now. And that's right, I think. No matter what this is, it's not the end. In fact, this might just be the end of the beginning. And if this is the end of the beginning, I'm glad I'm here with you. Growing food, riding bikes, reading, talking, listening, watching the young leaders in Milwaukee organize bike rides, watching them, believing with them that it's up to us what happens, even if it doesn't always feel that way. Our next story comes from Dan Vierk. 
Dan is a writer living just south of Madison. He is married with two sons and a dog. He has identical degrees from UW-Milwaukee and Southwest Minnesota State University because he wanted to get better at writing, but mostly because he thought it would be funny. Here's Dan. On a typical Saturday morning over coffee while the kids are oogling cartoons, my wife and I decide the one thing we're going to do today is go to Target, and I am a sucker for a plan they possess and consume me. We live a couple towns away from Target, but I'm the kind of liberal where if that's what it takes to avoid Walmart, we'll do it. Timing-wise, there's a sweet spot for this adventure. I can get a water bottle, milk bottle, sparkling waters, granola bars, yogurt melts, spare clothes, books, jangly toys, and back up everything into the van no problem. That's the easy part. The seven-year-old and his two-year-old brother are, like their parents before them, difficult. On the verge of missing the sweet spot, I have broken two sweats. If we leave much later, we'll be on the road at lunchtime, which costs money, and the two-year-old will fall asleep, spoiling his nap, spoiling everyone's afternoon. On the cusp of not going to make it, propelled by the dark energy of me not making enough of an effort to mask how unreasonably stressed I am, the four of us are in the living room, and I'm reaching to open the door, leading us out onto our adventure, when my grandfather-in-law's black Buick sedan lackadaisically loops in front of the house to hop the curb a little, and rock itself into park. Now, on the sports show replay of this scene, they'd have to blur out my mouth as I fastball my white flag deep into the earth. Our older son nicknamed him Bop Bop, and both boys are very excited to see him. My wife is empathetic to my perceived defeat, but she is also happy to see him. The same exact thing happens every single time, or at least it feels that way to me. So I take this opportunity to walk the dog, who is also excited to see Bop-Bop because he's always got some chicken bone or gizzard or something. My wife insists that her family has a thing about timing, and this reoccurring phenomenon of skewering our shopping plans is buoyant and plentiful evidence that Bop-Bop has the family timing in spades. This thing happened when we lived in different towns, and now that we live in the same town as him, Of course it happens more. In uh, the early spring of 2020, as COVID-19 made hospitals the last place anybody wanted to be more than ever and made visiting sick loved ones nearly impossible, we discover her grandpa has an aggressive, inoperable brain tumor. This is that timing, remember. Before we knew that, though, on this typical Saturday, this any Saturday, I'm just walking the dog, trying to talk myself down from my indefensible ledge. I remind myself that spending time with my grandfather-in-law is, and always has been, objectively positive. I regularly introduce him as the greatest man alive, and people inevitably underestimate my sincerity. My prevailing sentiment, at length, regarding Bop-Bop, is that he's the only person I've met where if he were to live forever, he would not be a dick about it. And we humans aren't so idiotic that we wouldn't try to foist Bop-Bop, were he immortal, to some position of power or prominence. Therein, I assert, lies his singularity. He knows he'll do more good doing the things he knows he can do 
rather than trying to do the things he isn't suited for or isn't interested in or for which another person, mortal as they may be, is more qualified. In fact, I would bet our inheritance that if he lived forever, he'd still shoot pool at the senior center, teach chess to his grandkids, and he'd go fishing every season, all seasons, and living for forever as he has lived these 87 years and change, he would say as often as it was the case, I can do that. In the eight years I've known him, I've spent more time with him than I spent with either of my biological grandfathers. When you know how someone's story is going to end, you think about this kind of stuff. Whatever else these intersections we have with mortality are, they are also mirrors. Who was this person to me? Who was I to this person? We see ourselves. Sometimes we reflect on other people, too, if they're standing close to us or something. But mostly ourselves, right? And if you're anything like me, your inner monologue throughout your reflection is, This guy. Whose fault is this guy? Who can I blame for all of this? In a way, I'm lucky that my parents and grandparents left me no shortage of evidence to validate the conventional wisdom of blaming them. I remember a lot of stories. I text my mom for a clarification about my dad's dad. I say, am I remembering it right that Grandpa Clarence refused to come fishing if dad brought us? She said she didn't remember hearing that specifically, but that it wouldn't surprise her. My mom is to sad stories what cats are to mice, and like a cat, she presents them to her loved ones as gifts. On this occasion, she presented me with nothing short of a bouquet. She recounted what she remembered hearing about my grandpa Clarence's childhood. His dad had died when he was four, and his mother took him with to the house where she worked as a maid. He was allowed to do that until eight, at which point he was moved to a farm where his brothers had already been living and working. He either slept on a porch or in a shed. She couldn't remember which. She followed that with my dad's mom's childhood. Her dad remarried several times, so she had a sprawling network of half-siblings. She moved a lot and never had a stable home. Uh, A large presence of alcohol is assumed. She jumped family trees to her own grandma, my great-grandma Kane, who I'm told was cooking, cleaning, and nannying at 12. Her brothers were working in the mines at 10. The children only came home on the weekends. The boys would wash themselves in kerosene to kill the lice, and the sisters would boil their brothers' clothes also to kill the lice. That was the end of the texts. She knew that I knew her parents' stories. My grandpa Robert had two birth certificates. His mom's name is spelled differently on each, and neither has a father's name. The story was that he was an Irishman who planted his seed, then dutifully went off to war and was predictably killed. It wasn't until I was an adult myself that my mom and uncles considered the possibility that this was all a face-saving ruse, which threw into question how most of my life we leaned very hard on our Irish ancestry. In my living room growing up, we had a whole curio cabinet of shamrock-colored and patterned beanie babies, so we were leaning pretty hard. That grandpa, my mom's dad, died when I was very young. But my mom's mom, my grandma June, we had some times together. She slapped me once on the wrist for messing with the TV remote, and to her nothing but amusement, I did not speak to her for months. The gist of this is that my great-grandma Kane was mean to my grandma June, and my grandma June was mean to my mom, 
who for her third and final child desperately wanted a girl but instead had me, who she had no option but to spoil as there was no girl to be mean to. The cycle stopped here. That cycle. My grandpa Clarence, my dad's dad, didn't die until I was a dad myself. He worked every job, usually more than one at a time, and well into his 70s. He was never home, and that was life. He sustained it, so it must have been a type of satisfactory for him at least. My dad, similarly, made a point to work every Christmas morning. As a compromise with my mom, he'd swing by in his patrol car to watch us open gifts with the volume down on his scanner. I swear I remember going fishing with my dad and his dad once, but who knows. I remember I was young enough when his faculties were starting to slip and I I felt like I should get to know him before it was over. I asked him, when you were a trucker, how'd you stay awake on the long drives? He said, I didn't. That's what rumble strips are for. My dad will quote him when he's helping me fix some wonky thing in my house. He'll say, what do I care? I don't have to live here. Or, I don't know what happened. I cut it twice and it's still too short. The legacy of my grandpa is that he had a cute little nothing for everything, which is to say I do not remember any conversations with him or around him. His was the last word, as conclusive as it was benign. My dad. I think my dad's cogs and sprockets are more than his frame was built to handle. I think he is brilliant. I think his nature and nurture never aligned. I cannot complain about an absent father because he was there, yet I am hard-pressed to remember events in my childhood that he did not meet with negativity or at least detachment. He said he liked to watch me play grade school baseball because, sure, I didn't know all the rules, but I swung hard, I ran fast, and I made a show of it. Decades later, he adopted a greyhound because he said the dog reminded him of me. How so? The dog refused to run. The one thing greyhounds are supposed to do. And these were endearing compliments. I do not think his intake and output are calibrated to conventional standards, and I love him for that. My conversations with my dad are strained. They are usually short. They are to the point. He has a conclusion for every argument like an arrow and a quiver. He is not evasive or endlessly amiable like his dad. He's replying to what I'm saying, which is progress, I suppose. He listens enough to choose an arrow, draw it back, aim, and fire. My brothers and I are the first generation in our lineage to not be hit by our parents. Our parents were the first in their lineage to not be separated by forces outside the control of their families. My grandparents' characters were shaped by, common as it may have been, trauma. Now, however like my dad I am, I do not have conclusions. That, I suppose, is also progress. I have two boys, and their mom answers most of their questions, because given the opportunity, I will use 3,000 words where 30 would do, and every ad hoc lecture is only to remind them that every single thing is inconceivably, incomprehensibly complicated. I am, in this way, unmerciful. Shortly after Bob Bob's diagnosis, he transitioned to a hospice situation living with my father-in-law. My wife said that her dad is an asshole for having her so young so she'd have so much time with her grandparents and love them and miss them as much as she does. She was joking, she said, but I couldn't tell because how hard she was crying. 
This is what I know about Bop Bop. He grew up in rural Minnesota without running water and farmed with his family. He enlisted and served in the Navy during the Korean War. He left the military and worked in Chicago, spending weekends in southern Wisconsin, building a house piece by piece for his family. They emigrated north when the A-frame, with solar-heated floors, was ready, and he opened his own diesel engine shop, which he ran successfully for decades. One summer, he built a tennis court on their property. In the winter, they used it for hockey. I could tell you about the RV only he could keep running or the canopy he installed on the boat that was not supposed to have a canopy, but I think you get the idea. We cleaned out Bop Bop's apartment and adopted his Rachel Ray pans, his good tools, because he'd already given me the other ones, his unmistakably 70s green on green on green hideaway bed, his file cabinet, and so on. But most significantly, we have his excess tinfoil and cling wrap. They are most significant because each box has a wood dowel shoved through it lengthways with tiny holes drilled through the wood and a very specific kind of pin through those holes so that when you pull on the roll, the roll doesn't come out of the box. To the surprise of no one, I had resolved to hating both cling wrap and tinfoil. I had accepted that life was cruel and each moment is another after another in a succession of unnecessary hardships and frustrations. These adapted boxes are striking and irrefutable evidence of a very different way of moving through this life. For several weeks leading up to the diagnosis, Bop-Bop had been calling us to ask if we had just called him. We had not. He was consistently lamenting to us that he could not get the community room TV of his senior living center to work anymore. He had told his neighbors he could do it. He had accepted that responsibility. We heard about it during pizza at our house and again over Chinese at his apartment and again from her dad on calls about him calling to see if we'd called him. This was unlike him being frustrated. He couldn't shake it and he wouldn't or he couldn't let it go. Maybe it's me being me, rude and cynical me, saying every person I've met, save for one, would be a dick if they lived forever. And this whole charade, this whole four pages, 15 minutes or whatever it is, is unmistakably me putting deprecation and piss and vinegar and spite and meanness and condescension in as many words as possible, as many chin-scratching postulations as possible between me and grief. That's my skill set. Retreat. I can manufacture distance. Disengage. I can articulate speculation. Theorize. I can delineate and I can judge. It's what I can do. It's what I can do. It's what I can do. It's what I do. It's who I am. I am built for endless consideration and reflection, predisposed against decisiveness and action. Blurry as my reflection is, no matter which side of the tinfoil I am staring through, my prevailing sentiment regarding my grandfather-in-law is simple, steadfast, and ironclad. It is the defining glimmer of this current intersection with mortality. If Bop Bop were to live forever, I know he would not be a dick about it, because the only thing that bothered him was knowing he could do something, but not being able to figure out how. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Blight Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. I am Sean Williamson. Please check us out on Instagram and Twitter. A rating on Apple Pods is a true gift. As always, links to cited articles and information can be found in the show notes. Show music today by Sean Stefani. Thank you, Sean. Playing us out is a poem by Ashley Main. Ashley's work has appeared or is forthcoming in Fence, Post Road, Juked, Peripheries, Metam Basin, and elsewhere. Blight will be releasing an audio version of Ashley's story, A Skull Dreams It Is a Horse, this fall, which is a project we are all very excited about. I will include the link to the print version of that story, originally published and juked in 2018, in the show notes. Here's Ashley. Dear one, text your wife, not me. All of us wait for home as long as we can. And that's life, isn't it? Or something. A girl in a mask with a gray dog gets on and off the train while I wait for my stop. And I won't if it means 30 years or two or none. Hilltop Drive Attic. You said once, you're the weather. But I shouldn't anymore. You know, I've had lupus and tinnitus, a glass eye, bruxism, and all these other things. In two upstate towns, 20 miles apart on the Harlem line, two pink plastic elephants stand on the roofs of two sheds. I've never done cocaine or wanted to. Dear one, do not forget. The animals were artists once when they were young. A man on the train collapsed yesterday and we gave him candy we had shoplifted. I walked past a wolf diorama once and thought it was real and still and still. Tirakchana, Valhalla Station, do not forget. All the kids left out on dark porches, smoking like men.